morning and welcome. We are glad you were here with us this day. I was reading an interesting article uh, about the Berlin Wall. And some of you are not old enough, really, to remember the Berlin Wall when there was an East Germany and a West Germany and Berlin was divided by this wall. Uh, next month will mark the 29th anniversary since the fall of the Berlin Wall. In my life, it seems like yesterday. Uh, but 29 years, that kind of shocked me that uh, it had come down 29 years ago. It was a historic event, and the world changed dramatically and drastically. And, and I think, for the most part, for the better. And in those uh, almost 30 years, uh, that iconic symbol crumbled as well it should have. Uh, but things haven't changed for everybody. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but for almost 30 years, the Berlin Wall separated two populations of red deer living in the forests that uh, encompassed the border between Germany and what is now the Czech Republic. And uh, when the wall was dismantled in 1989, the physical uh, barrier between these two populations of red deer uh, were, were removed. But wildlife biologists began studying the deer in 2002, and they quickly realized that the deer living in Germany were not migrating to the Czech Republic, and the deer living in the Czech Republic were not migrating into Germany also. In other words, both populations of deer were living as if the wall was still intact. And that was really puzzling for the wildlife biologists. And they studied one doe in particular. Uh, they put a, a radio transmitter on her, and she became the symbol of those two populations of red deer in Germany and the Czech Republic. And her movement uh, through the forests of what is now eastern Germany were tracked by a GPS collar that was fitted on her. And uh, the biologist was named Marco, Marco Huerich. And during the time she was monitored, uh, this doe was tracked more than 11,000 times in Germany, but never in the Czech Republic, even though there was no barrier any longer between the two. Uh, she never crossed over. And two elements of the story of that doe's story are particularly noteworthy. First of all, she was born 18 years after the destruction of the Berlin Wall. She has no physical memory of the wall's existence, and yet that doe is still blocked by it. And then secondly, the land formerly occupied by the wall and the guard towers has been turned into a large and thriving nature preserve. In other words, the land beyond the wall has become a haven, a perfect home for this deer, this doe, to live and her family, and yet she will not enter it, or she would not enter it. Uh, Hurek, the biologist and his team, <clears throat> they've come up with several theories to explain why this is occurring in those deer, or did occur, and a strange behavior. And uh, most deer travel on <clears throat> well-established traditional trails that are passed down through generations. And if you travel into the mountains and different places, you will see game trails, and you know that the deer pass those game trails down from generation the generation by modeling it in repetition. It's possible that this doe and her family and her whole herd simply haven't ventured beyond the beaten path. Uh, a wildlife filmmaker uh, who works in that area and has filmed these deer has a different explanation, a different theory, and according to him, he said, quote, the wall in the head is still there. And uh, there may be some truth to that. <clears throat> 
the wall and the head is still there. Well-worn paths that we learn. Uh, even in Christianity, we have well-worn paths depending upon our tr traditions and the way we live out our lives and what we consider important and essential uh, to our walk as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this world, there is much tumult, as we recognize. I'm thankful that Dave Johnson uh, introduced us to a whole short lesson in civics uh, and reminder, again, again, that we have the right to pursue happiness. Uh, I don't know if, it's, if you're experiencing the same thing, but every day in my mailbox, I'm getting just tons of these election flyers for different candidates. They are messing with my pursuit of happiness, let me tell you that. <laughs> so it's good, Dave. Thank you for reorienting me to the privilege we have to vote in this country. I am thankful for that. But uh, with the midterm elections upon us, I thought Psalm 2 was a very appropriate psalm in the midst of our election process. I like what Winston Churchill, the great prime minister of Great Britain, said one time. He said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. <laughs> and so we have the blessing and the bane of living in this country, and I honestly am very thankful uh, for our country and for our founding fathers, and yet sometimes it seems like things are in great up upheaval, especially as we continue to be further divided in the political scene. Our individual lives sometimes can be overwhelmed also with tumult and with struggle and the question of why and the struggle we have with adversity and difficulty, and we can be overwhelmed at times when we look at the global scene it seems like Satan is winning on every front, and it seems like uh, evil seems to prevail. As Dave read for us Psalm 2, I hope your ears were listening as uh, the voices of four speakers were speaking in there. There's four different stanzas in this psalm. Remember, we're doing a short series, some select psalms out of the, what we call the Book of Psalms. And <clears throat> we did Psalm 1 last week, and today we're doing Psalm 2. But if you notice that there are four stanzas in Psalm 2, and remember, this is Hebrew poetry, and oftentimes, and most of the time, it was uh, sung. It was sung antiphonally sometimes, and there's different types of psalm, uh, psalms in the book of psalms. We have praise psalms, we have lament psalms, we have community psalms, we have different expressions of worship and faith and following God that come out of uh, Hebrew poetry out of the Old Testament. And so we see in Psalms 2 that there are four different speakers, and uh, it's a commentary on the world scene. If you think that the current political turmoil and uh, the worldwide global scene is something new, it is not. Uh, there has been difficulty, struggle, and adversity all the way. Psalm 2 is considered a Christ-centered psalm, anticipating the coming Messiah. Uh, there's a number of psalms in the book of Psalms that are called Messianic psalms, referring to the Messiah. And Psalm 2 is one. Psalm 8, which we'll look at next week, is another. 16, 22, 23. There's a number of psalms that are foretelling or uh, alluding to the coming Messiah that was promised clear back in Genesis chapter 3. And so we come here to this psalm, and again, it is without ascription. You notice as you look at the, the, the psalms in your Bibles that there's usually an ascription, a psalm of David or a psalm of Asaph or a psalm of Moses. 
Uh, but the first two psalms are without ascription, and so in some, one sense we're left without knowing who the psalmist was that wrote down these Hebrew poems. And yet we know that Psalms 2 was uh, written about 3,000 years ago, and it's attributed to King David. We know that because in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Acts 4, 25 through 26, uh, it is said there by the early church that through the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, and they quote this first stanza out of <clears throat> the book of Psalms, Psalm 2. And so this psalm divides itself into four equal uh, divisions, essentially, with four different speakers. And uh, one of the former preachers from another generation, uh, I'm borrowing his outline, basically, in, in one sense. But the first verses, verses 1 through 3, we have the narrator speaker, the psalmist speaking, and he is referring to the human heart's rebellion that every human heart is rebelling against God. And he asks some questions here, beginning in verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising vain things? Two questions come forward. Why is there so much global conflict? Why much, so much conflict? And why is there so much individual confusion? And as we are, uh, I think, not necessarily blessed with a 24-7 news cycle. We are always exposed, unless we take a sabbatical from the news, to what is going on around our world. Uh, Warren Wiersbe writes that David didn't expect a reply when he asked this question because there really is no reply. It is an expression of astonishment when you consider all that the Lord has done for the nations. How can they rebel against him? God has provided for their basic needs, Acts 14, guided them, kept them alive, sent a Savior to bring forgiveness and eternal life, Acts 17. Uh, yet from the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 to the crucifixion of Christ in, recorded in Acts chapter 4 to the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19, the Bible records humanity's foolishness and futile rebellions against the will of the Creator, unquote. And, of course, uh, all through Scripture, we see two consistent things. First of all, the character of God is always consistent. Whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, no matter what portion of Scripture you go to, the character of God is consistently portrayed. He is righteous. He is just. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He is carrying out his plan throughout all of the ages. The other consistent thing we see is the plight of mankind, humankind. Uh, we are sinners in need of a Savior. There is this thing called, <coughs> excuse me, uh, called sin that has entered the world, and we are all subject to it. And as I was uh, talking with my life group this last week, the, the reminder is that these bodies of flesh have not been redeemed yet, and so this spiritual battle goes on with each individual. Now, for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are new creatures in Christ, and we are given the Holy Spirit who indwells us and guides us and cares for us. And yet the struggle is very real. There is adversity. And then he identifies the protagonists in verse 2. He asks these two questions. Then there are the protagonists. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. And who do they take it against? Against the Lord and against his anointed. And so the identity is, in this sense, world leaders. I like to think of it in our day and age and in our country, we don't think about kings very often or sovereigns that lead nations. The context for uh, King David and for 
the world at that time was every nation had a king of some type, and we still have some with us today. But it's really more about the idea of those who are the gatekeepers of our culture, the gatekeepers of society, those who influence others in the wrong way and sometimes uh, maybe in evil ways. World leaders, gatekeepers, influencers, they take their stand, it says. And we see that in popular culture all around us. There are influencers and gatekeepers who are pushing an agenda which is anti-Christ agenda. It is against everything a Christian would stand for against Scripture. The rulers, they take counsel together. They are plotting a war against God and his anointed one. That is a curious verse there when it says anointed, that is the Messiah. It's the Hebrew term, which means the anointed one. It's translated in the Greek, <clears throat> the Greek translation of the Old Testament done before the time of Christ as Messiah. And so that is the New Testament name, the title of Jesus. He is the Messiah, the one promised to come rescue his people. And the word Lord there is the proper name for Lord. It is the term uh, Yahweh, it's the tetragrammaton in Hebrew, there's four letters. And the, the, to this day, Jewish people who observe their faith will not pronounce that name. And you're, if you use King James, it's translated Jehovah, and that was a later edition at King James' time, a guess about what those four letters mean. But more accurately in Hebrew, it's Yahweh, or his, his proper name. And we see it first appearing in Exodus chapter 3 when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses said, who are you? Who should I say sent me? And he said, I am that I am. It is the proper name. It is Yahweh, God's proper name. And so observant Jews will not even pronounce that name. If they are reading this portion of scripture, they will not say Jehovah or Yahweh. They will say they will substitute the term Adonai, which we see later in scripture down in verse 4. The way you can tell in your English version, and this is why you should read the introductions to your Bible, it helps you understand the translators and how they came to certain positions in your version of Scripture, or your English version. But the proper name of God is given to us in the English word, Lord, capital L, small cap, O-R-D, small caps. Okay, that's the proper name of God, or Yahweh, or Jehovah, if you prefer. When he's talking about Adonai, which simply means master, uh, it'll be capital L, small o-r-d. And so you can make that distinction when you read through the Old Testament. And here the psalmist has chosen to use the proper name in verse 2 against the Lord, against the very being, the creator of the universe, the one who said, I am that I am, and against his anointed one. This anointed one we know from hindsight now is the Christ, Jesus Christ, who came uh, some thousand years later. And so it's foretelling this. And it tells us there that these world leaders, these influencers, these rulers take counsel together to rebel. And they uh, recognize, they have a recognition of evil plans. And they say in verse 3, and here's their voice, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. They see Christianity, they see faith in God as a bondage. Does that sound familiar with our culture? Does that sound what you re like what you read in everyday popular culture? It sure is. It feel, you know, they, they, they make you think that Christianity is fetters and cords. It's bondage and exactly the, the opposite of that. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was right when he said, we have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. 
a hatred of the human nature against the Christ of God. You know, we're all born uh, with fists, and mankind shakes his fists against God, doesn't he? And maybe if you became a believer, as I did later on in life, and I believed I was an atheist and an agnostic, and I was shaking my fist at God. And I praise God that he opened my eyes to the truth, that he saved me, and that I could accept him, believe in him for eternal life. Another quote about uh, our rebellious natures is, rebellious unbelief is the core of all sins. Rebellious actions are its visible expression. And so we have this consequence of this defiance against the Lord and Christ. Those are described in Romans chapter 1. If you're familiar with the book of Romans in the New Testament, read chapter 1 after today. And it will describe for you this rebellious unbelief and these actions and this shaking our fist in God's face. Frederick Langbridge, who was a pastor and a theologian from another era, wrote this. Two men look out through the same bars. One sees the mud and one sees stars. These two men, two different perspectives, aren't they? And he was referring to the perspective, of course, of life. You know, downcast looks guarantee a view of the mud. It takes an upward look to see the stars, of course, on a dark night also. Uh, I like uh, what James Branch Cabell said. The optimist proclaims that we live in the best of all possible worlds, and the pessimist fears this is true. <laughs> so uh, you may fall in one of the other sides of that quote. And uh, the psalmist is uh, looking now at stargazing. He's going to move from these rulers. He's going to move from this, uh, this rebellious unbelief that he has pointed out here. And he's moving to the God the Father's rebuke. And here we see the sovereign appointment of the Son to reign and God the Father explaining that. The Lord's response in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Now, my studies, when you do a search uh, of when God laughs, it's an interesting little study because I've only found three times where God laughs at something. You don't want him laughing at you because none of those are positive things. It's like here. God's response is he scoffs at this pitiful attempt by puny men to rebel against his anointed king. And his rebuke is found in verses 5 through 6. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Zion is what we know as Jerusalem today. It was conquered by David from the Canaanite. It had been a Canaanite village, and David conquered it and set up his capital there. And to this day, it's called Mount Zion by some and many people. And so the Lord rebukes them. He's placed his chosen king, the son of God, on the throne that he wants him to be in. Uh, Charles Spurgeon again writes, while they are proposing these rebellious people, he has disposed the matters. Je uh, Jehovah's will is done. The man and man's will frets and raves in vain. God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. Spurgeon had a way with words. And so the father rebukes them, the sovereign appointment of this coming Messiah, and nothing will stop it, as we see as we go into the New Testament. The anointed one himself at this juncture speaks, the God the Son, 
And in verses 7 through 9, we see God the Son's revelation. And he tells us there, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Enthroned, the right of God's anointed, he's enthroned by God the Father. Remember, in the Davidic covenant, there's the covenant that God made with Abraham and then with David and uh, the new covenant that this Messiah is coming. God has promised, and he is fulfilling his covenant. And David's throne would be an everlasting throne, and Jesus Christ is the heir to that throne, that covenant that God made with David. And the rule of God's anointed. He is supreme over all the nations in verse 8. And the might, he was absolute power and authority in verse 9. You may not think of it, but I think of verses 8 and 9 as the greatest missionary challenge to the church. When we think of world missions, of global missions, of not only our calling to worship God Almighty, but invite others to worship with us. That's why we send missionaries to China and to Africa and various places around the world. And why we also, in our context, whether it's our neighborhood, our family, our schools, our workplace, should be ready to give a reasoned answer for the hope that lies within us as believers in Jesus Christ. This is an acknowledgement of what the author of the book of Hebrews says in applying another psalm to Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, he quotes Psalm 8, 4 through 6, noting that the Father has placed everything under Jesus' feet. But he says, at present, we do not see everything subject to him in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus is Lord, but there are still many, like the rulers of Psalm's opening lines, who resist him. And so this is the great missionary challenge of the church. It is for us the grateful subject of God's divine kingdom to make his name known among the nations until every ear shall hear and every knee shall bow. Harry Ironside, uh, the great evangelist and teacher from the last part of the, or middle part of the last century, wrote, I never come to a missionary meeting but I feel as though there ought to be written right across the entire platform, ask of me and I shall give you the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And then he continues, it is the will of God that his sons should have a great heritage after the heathen world and the godless Gentiles. Our assignment is to carry the message of God's decree and Christ's rule to them. It is to proclaim the rule of Jesus Christ. You remember Landbridge's words, you know, about the two men looking through the prison bars, one sees mud, the other sees stars. Well, I get worried about both of those classes of people, the extreme optimist, the extreme pessimist. The muddy-eyed pessimist and the starry-eyed optimist really are both off course. We as believers should be realists. We should be realists in light of the world situation and in light of what we know about God and his character. A realist sees the earth in light of heaven and man in light of God and human impotence in the light of divine triumph. It is a great privilege for us as believers in Christ to have the advantage of a realistic global perspective. You know, there are some who say that this Psalm 2 was originally part of Psalm 1. It was one large psalm based upon the fact that Psalm 1 begins with a beatitude. How happy is the man, or how blessed is the man. And Psalm 2 ends in verse 12 with how blessed are all. 
And uh, that was one of David's mechanisms. He would, when he was speaking about God and about the blessings and happiness, he would begin and end his psalms. And so there's some evidence that this was one major portion of Scripture at that time to introduce the rest of the psalms. And that would make sense because remember in Psalm 1, the two ways, the way of the righteous, which is representative of Jesus Christ, and the way of the wicked or the sinner are contrasted. And he talks about that in Psalm 1. You know, the the way of the wicked will perish, the end of Psalm 1. And then he launches in to the uproar of the nations, the rebellion of man, the human heart that rebels. And so we need to be realists in this. And so the psalm concludes in verses 10 through 12. And uh, with the Holy Spirit counseling, this is the Holy Spirit's move in counseling, the power of God, imploring, encouraging, warning, calling upon all people to believe in Jesus Christ because the hostility is futile. The only reasonable thing for people to do is to throw down their arms and submit to God. His injunctions are swift and absolute. This is a plea to take refuge. In verse 10, there is the warning. There is the warning. In verse 10, he says, Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Call the discernment. To be wise, in verse 10, means to think this thing out clearly. Recognize the situation for what it is. Don't nurse any hope of succeeding over God because it just will not happen. And then there's a gracious invitation to worship in verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. There's this recognition of God. It means to worship him, recognize his greatness, bow in awe before him, that we are small creatures and God is all-powerful. And rejoice with trembling means that submitting to God, we will find true happiness with great joy. And the place of refuge we find in verse 12, do homage to the Son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled But how blessed are those who take refuge in him. We have great privilege as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it comes with great responsibility to worship him. What a great privilege. And also to share the good news of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of the turmoil, the adversity, the political lack of discourse, if you will, in our country. And uh, we should be fearlessly and conscientiously alert to this world to both know what God has said, and blessed are they who put their trust in him. I was reading uh, that in Ghana, Africa, uh, in their language, the dominant language of Ghana, the only way to ask the question, what is your religion, like we would say, what is your religion or what church do you go to, is to ask, quote, whom do you serve? Whom do you serve? I like that. I think that's a better question. (laughs) I like that. Regardless of our denominational loyalties, official creeds, the true God is the one who you serve. And so that leaves us with that question. Whom do you serve? Are you aligned with the nations that are in an uproar? Or are you one who has taken refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the Psalms. Thank you for 